Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground 44 with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. This week, we're looking at the social impact of the war on British society, in particular, the arrival of huge numbers of overseas troops in preparation for the great invasion of France. They came from all over the world, but the majority of them were, of course, Americans. US troops and airmen first began coming in 1942, but at the start of 1944, 80 years ago, vast numbers of infantrymen began flooding in, leaving an indelible imprint on British society. We promised that this series would not be all about battles. War is many things, but above all, it is transformative. The arrival of so many foreigners, albeit many of them speaking English, changed the look and feel of the British way of life and set the country up for a post-war era in which the demographic would steadily and irreversibly change. We'll be looking into all that, but first, Patrick, Give us some of the background. Well, so for all its imperial reach, Britain was a pretty enclosed society uh, when the war began in 1939. Most people outside London had never seen a foreigner and only the rich travelled abroad. So you've got racially this pretty homogenous society, but it was, of course, strictly defined by class. So from the start of the war, all this starts to change. In London, you get large-scale arrivals from the defeated nations, first Poles and Czechs, then French and Belgians and Norwegians. And they're, they're pretty visible. They set up their own clubs and restaurants, adding a, a you know rather exotic touch to the cultural texture of the city. Then from 1942, you get the big influx, the Americans start appearing, and the effect is felt everywhere, not just in London. So the first troops based in Northern Ireland. Uh, the American airmen are sent to bases in East Anglia. And then when the infantry divisions start pouring in, in preparation for Operation Overlord, the Normandy landings at the start of end of 43 and the start of 44, the whole of Southern England starts to fill up with Yanks. Uh, it wasn't just Americans, of course, the French Deuxième Blande Armoured Division under General Philippe Leclerc was based in Yorkshire. So these sleepy villages in the walls are suddenly chock-a-block with exotic warriors, sun-bronzed from the campaigns in North Africa. Uh, many of them, of course, weren't French at all, but they were Spanish, Spanish Republicans who, uh, having been defeated by Franco, had joined up 
to fight fascism wherever they found it. So how did the British react to this influx of newcomers? By and large, they were enormously welcoming. Um, after all, these newcomers had left their homes behind to come and fight on Britain's side. And certainly in the memoirs I read by members of the Leclerc division, um, they're full of warm memories of the reception they got. And the Spanish were particularly admired by the Yorkshire lasses as they were rather sort of gallant, you know, very well-mannered and, and good dancers. But th that seemed to be the case all over. I remember the the mother of a girlfriend of mine getting all misty-eyed when she recalled how romantic the Poles were, you know, kissing hands, reciting poetry and all the rest of it. But I think it was the Americans who made the biggest impression. Yeah, and how was that? Well, again, it was this, um, you know, this touch of glamour they brought to drab British towns and villages. Of course, America was was familiar to Brits, uh, much more so that, than France or or Spain or, or Poland was. Uh, everyone knew what America and Americans were like from Hollywood. This was the golden age of cinema when almost everyone went to the pictures, as they would call it then, uh, once a week. But until the war, it all seemed impossibly distant. Uh, and now here were the Americans in person, and they often looked something like those they saw on the silver screen. They had good teeth, smart uniforms. They were chewing gum, wisecracking with each other, just like on the movies. And there they were wandering around your your village or town. I'll just read out something my old colleague at the Telegraph, the great military historian John Keegan, who was a teenager when the Yanks arrived in his West Country home, wrote. This was his reaction as a 10-year-old when the first GIs arrived. How different they looked from our own jumble-sailed champions, beautifully clothed in smooth khaki, as fine in cut and quality as the British officers, and armed with glistening modern automatic weapons, Thompson submachine guns, Winchester carbines, Garand self-loading rifles. More striking still were the number, size and elegance of the vehicles in which they paraded about the countryside in stately convoy. The British Army's transport was a sad collection of underpowered makeshifts whose dun paint flaked from their tin pot bodywork. The Americans travelled in magnificent, gleaming, olive-green, pressed steel, four-wheel drive juggernauts. Now, as John was watching the trucks passing, the, the troops in the back would chuck candy out of the back, Hershey bars and the like. And, you know, he marveled. This was a month, he was getting a whole month's ration of sweets dispersed in a few seconds. So this sort of amazing largesse, you know, this cornucopia that's coming from across the Atlantic. Now, he was a patriotic little boy, but even at that age, uh, he could see that something very significant was going on here. Order of the free world was changing. And Britain was the past, it seemed to him, and the future belonged to America. But it's also interesting to read what the Americans thought of the Brits. And by and large, they saw them a bit like, you know, again, rather sort of cinematic terms as this sort of charming but rather backward society. You know, all the, all the kind of picture book stuff they'd seen back at home seemed to be there replicated in, in the flesh, if you like, in these little charming little places that they found themselves quartered. Um, but they very much appreciated the hospitality they received. And the more thoughtful ones saw something in the Brits and British values uh, that was worth fighting for. Now, among the new arrivals, I, I reference this in my book on, on the liberation of Paris. I follow this character all the way through. This is the young Jerry Salinger, then a sergeant in the counterintelligence corps. 
He was uh, serving with the 4th Infantry Division, the Ivy, as they were called, and based near Tiverton in Devon. Of course, Jerry Salinger would become world famous after the war as J.D. Salinger with the appearance of Capture in the Rye. His stay inspired one of his best-loved short stories about an encounter with a serious young girl in a tea shop in Tiverton. And the memory of this uh, he clings on to during the horrors of the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest later that year, and it helps to keep him sane. The story is called For Esme with Love and Squalor. And though it's nothing about fighting as such, it's a brilliant exposition of war in its oblique way. Okay, Patrick, you told us something about the positive aspect of the Americans and why they might be welcomed. But they weren't, as I think we know, universally popular, were they? I mean, particularly with our own servicemen who were losing out in the dance halls to the Poles and also the Americans. And we all remember, of course, the old saying, a bit hackneyed now, that they were overpaid. This is the Americans, of course. They were overpaid, oversexed and over here. Well, the first and third parts were certainly true. They were much better paid than their their Brit counterparts and flashed the cash down the pub. Uh, Inevitably, they were going to have considerable success pulling the girls, and that led to punch-ups. But I think there was also some resentment of their attitude, which seemed to be that now they were here, the war could really begin. And we see this in in Masters of the Air, this uh, epic series about the 8th Air Force, about the 100th Bombardment, group which um, has just started on uh, telly here in, in Britain. You know, the suggestion there, some of the characters, when they encounter the RAF, is that the Brits have been bumbling around in the dark for three years, you know, bombing at night. And now the 8th Air Force has arrived, things are going to change. It's, that's sort of really a huge distortion of the, of the facts, but we'll probably save that for another day. But I think that the RAF crews did find the uh, Americans tendency to self-dramatization quite amusing. In my book, Bomber Boys, I quote an RAF bomber command pilot, Ken Newman, who recalled going to a film show in 1944, and in the audience were quite a few Americans. Now, he wrote, the movie celebrated the fictional feats of a band of American aviators who volunteered to fly B-17s in Europe. So this was sounds like it was a forerunner of Masters of the Air. He goes on, all the RAF officers present were nearly doubled up with laughter at the rubbishy Hollywood propaganda. When the lights were put on, the faces of the USAAF aircrew were a picture. It was all too clear that they'd taken the film completely seriously and identified themselves with the actors. Tears were streaming from our eyes too, but for a very different reason. So I think, you know, the old sort of British attitude if you don't get to show too much emotion, uh, you're always being rather sardonic about whatever it is you're doing, was very much in the ascendant. And they found the Americans' attitude, you know, really just sort of seeing themselves as the, as the living embodiment of what was actually happening on the screen, rather amusing. Yeah, but nonetheless, Patrick, I mean, many people did look at the Americans, uh, seeing them as well-fed, smart, confident, nowhere near as deferential to those uh, who gave the orders as their British counterparts were. And they must have thought, why can't we be like that? I mean, there must be a kind of sense of, yeah, we, we do actually quite admire this society. Because if you think about it, Patrick, I mean, it, it was quite clear, as you've already po- pointed out, that Britain was still very much a class-bound society. You could argue that it still is to a certain extent. But at that time, you know, with the sort of inequalities in, in wealth, 
and a determination among people once they were serving not to return to the unemployment and misery of the early 1930s. And and also change was already in the air by the time a lot of the Americans had come over. You'd had the publication of the Beveridge Report in 1942, which, which was an attempt to imagine what Britain would be like after the war by proposing a government program that would that's going to protect the citizen from unemployment and ill health from the cradle to the grave, and which, as we know now, laid the foundations for a, a free national health service. So in some ways, the Americans were something for us to aspire to, but there was also a dark side, I suspect. Britain by no means liked all aspects of American society that they saw in Britain. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, no, that, that is right. So we've got to remember that 10% of the troops arriving were black. Now, it was pretty well immediately obvious to the Brits that these were second-class citizens. You know, the army was strictly segregated. Blacks and whites just did not mix. And the racial theories of the time meant that black soldiers were not deemed worthy or capable of being fighters, of being combatant soldiers. So they were relegated to doing menial tasks, uh, you know, supporting the fighting troops. It's astonishing that in, in 1939, there were only five black officers in the US Army, and three of those were chaplains. Uh, and this uh, attitude, the segregationist attitude, came from the very top, um, including, I'm afraid to say, uh, Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall of Marshall Plan fame. He, he was um, pretty insistent that the army was not going to be party to a social experiment to pursue the cause of black equality. And there were lots of events that, that did put on display the blatant bigotry shown by many white American soldiers towards their black countrymen. And of course, this exposed a great and embarrassing paradox of the war. The Allies were fighting in the name of liberty to free the world from racist tyranny. However, uh, their own objectives did not include equality for the black and brown communities fighting on their behalf. And the Americans had, had sort of cleared the way before they came uh, with the British government that they, they would be allowed to carry on their segregationist policies, even though uh, there were no such discriminatory laws in the UK. Even before America entered the war, uh, the Churchill administration had already made it clear that they weren't going to actually oppose this. It's hardly surprising, really, given the, the fact that Britain couldn't really do anything without US support. Yeah. And of course, as a result, once they got to the UK, uh, there were clearly lots of instances of bad feeling between the races within the US Army. I mean, I think we all remember when we look back at the Second World War that there were lots of clashes between the white GIs and black soldiers who were understandably angered at their second class status and the way they were being treated. That's right. There were literally hundreds of clashes between the two, uh, often very bloody like the one that erupted in the centre of Bristol on the 15th of July, 1944, leaving one dead and many injured. But uh, the worst period seems to have been towards the end of 43 and the beginning of 44. The US Army found that in the three months from November 43, uh, there were 56 violent clashes. That's an average of four a week. And many of them were fought out in these, you know, usually pretty placid uh, southern towns like Launceston in the West Country, Brixham, Newton Abbott, Reading, Basingstoke, and Winchester. Winchester, you know, a very sort of um, genteel town where there were 
three punch-ups in one day. But uh, often in in the courts martial that resulted, it was the blacks who were punished more harshly than the whites. So was there any pattern to how these clashes came about? Yeah, I mean, underlying most of them was uh, white resentment at the freedoms enjoyed by the blacks in Britain, and in particular, the success they had with local women. You know, they GIs would go to a dance, white GIs, and see white women jitterbugging. That was the big dance of the day with um, black men who they thought of as inferiors. They'd step in, words would be exchanged. It wouldn't be long before fists and knives flew. But Brits, by and large, were you know, very uneasy or unhappy about the segregationist policy. Um, there are several stories of how pub landlords resented being told by the military authorities that they had to operate a colour bar, and they reacted to it by putting up signs saying, black troops only, which, of course, enraged the, um, the white troops further. Yeah. What, what was the government's attitude to all of this? Well, that was much less welcoming, I think, than the ordinary populations. You know, theoretically, they were upholding the rights of blacks, uh, both Commonwealth and American, to be treated equally. But they were undoubtedly seriously alarmed at the effect that the influx of allied black soldiers generally would have on British society. And there are stories or reports, you know, well-documented reports showing how they secretly connived to enforce segregation and to discourage sexual liaisons across the colour line. So, uh, for example, female military personnel were warned to avoid intimate relations with black troops, and any woman found ignoring it uh, could find herself being punished for it. The Ministry of Information ran a sort of undercover campaign using the Women's Voluntary Service to promote segregation. They started a, a kind of whispering campaign against women seen with black men and promoted the idea that uh, black men were susceptible to having venereal disease and to counter the kind of friendliness uh, that they saw between uh, black troops and English women. They set up a a chain of uh, so-called welcome clubs. I think there were about 260 of them where white GIs uh, could meet local girls, but from which colored troops, as they were called in the parlance of the day, were excluded. And yet, despite all this, uh, there were lots of liaisons, weren't there, between black soldiers and British women? That's right. Um, Love will find a way. And people managed to work their way around the prohibitions and the the scaremongering. Um, About 2,000 children were born to British women and black American servicemen during the war. And all this was part of a broader breaking down of barriers. You said at the top, Saul, that war is transformative. You know, it forces change at a much faster pace than would perhaps happen in peacetime. And and that's what happened here. So I think the combination of the race riots and public resistance to the idea of separate treatment forced both the US and the UK governments to adopt more progressive policies. So by the end of the war, American blacks were in combat, uh, notably, of course, in tank units at the spearhead of the Allied drive into Germany. And the army belatedly accepted that segregation couldn't continue, and the policy was actually abandoned three years after the war. Well, in Britain, you know, the process began slightly earlier, and it was led really by the RAF, who initially had had a Europeans-only policy for air crews. But I think shortages, and I think just an acceptance that this was wrong, led to them reaching out to the West Indies to recruit air crew there. And so you see lots of very interesting 
people who, ha- who went on to have um, have significant roles in, in post-war life in Britain and in the West Indies, seeing this as an opportunity and, and volunteering. Uh, this guy called Billy Strawn, who was born in Jamaica, was a descendant of slaves. At 18 years old, he they were all had this sort of very strong sense of, um, of loyalty and, and duty towards the mother country. And he, Billy, paid his own passage across the Atlantic to join the RAF and ended up flying 33 missions with Bomber Command. And there's many, many stories like that. And you see generally also a new assertiveness which forces this retreat from racism, forces the government to think again, not just in the the services. Uh, There was a famous story, a very well-known, celebrated West Indian cricketer called Leary Constantine. Now, he had a a grim experience when he tried to book into the Imperial Hotel in Russell Square uh, in 1944 with his family and was told that... uh, he wasn't welcome there because uh, his presence and his family's presence would offend white U.S. military guests. Well, he pushed back very forcefully against that, and the subsequent publicity brought about a change in the war and, and could be argued laid the legal foundations for the anti-discriminatory legislation culminating in 2010 in the Equality Act. So I think you can say that the arrival of the Americans, black and white, did have a profound effect on British society. Uh, you could argue that it was the experience of black servicemen in the war before the arrival of uh, Empire Windrush, the ship which brought the first West India migrants to the UK in 1948, was the real turning point in the history of British race relations. And what about the way it shaped politics more generally? Well, as we've said, leaving aside the segregation issue, the Americans uh, seemed to provide evidence of a prosperity and opportunity that were in pretty short supply in Britain. But the other thing we mustn't forget, Saul, is um, that the Soviet Union was acting as a great advertisement for the benefits of, if not a communist system, at least a a socialist one. Stalin wasn't the kind of monster we think of him as today. He was Uncle Joe. He was a popular hero. And all the horrors of his regime, the purges, the mass killings, the organized famines, and all that were blotted out by the huge sacrifices and achievements of the Red Army. So it was that when victory came, the electorate, though thankful to Winston Churchill for his war leadership, had no intention of returning to a Britain of rampant capitalism and class privilege and were dead set on change. And I think the dream was a sort of hybrid of a consumerist society, a la United States of America, combined with an egalitarian ethos that took at least some of its inspiration from the Soviet Union. So I think we see the results you know, very clearly in the stunning victory for the Labour Party in the July 1945 election, where they won 145 majority of seats in the House of Commons. That's a huge number. Uh, the first time they'd ever had an outright majority. And at the same time, they won 47.7% of the vote. So half the country is voting very clearly for change. It's very obviously, I think, a hinge moment in the political mood of Britain, and it was the transformative experience of war that had created it. Yeah, and it and it explains, of course, Patrick, the the, the conundrum, which uh, I, I think certainly a lot of military historians find find odd that the great war leader Churchill is, you know, relatively unceremoniously 
cast out in 1945. But I think the the, the changes in society and the and the examples, as you've said, Patrick, both from the United States, other countries, but also from the Soviet Union, were the drivers behind this. And it, it does underpin the, the the point that we make as historians of war that you know if you want to understand how things move at a more rapid pace, the events of conflict or what happens during conflict almost always drive that. And I, I suspect we'll be seeing exactly the same as a result of the Ukraine war. Okay, now just to uh, give a little bit of personal insight from the podcast, James, our producer, uh, to top off uh, this story of the Americans coming over during the Second World War, is going to tell us something that involves his own family. James, what happened? Yes, that's right. So my my maternal grandmother grew up in East Anglia, in Suffolk, actually, on the Suffolk Norfolk border. And that was where the uh, American air bases or a lot of the uh, bomber air bases were based during the Second World War. And it's coincidentally how she met my, my grandfather, who came over from the Northwest to go over there as he was a, a wireless operator on Lancaster bombers. But I always remember the story of that the American serviceman came over to her house to ask her and her sister out for a dance. And her dad, my great-grandfather, who was a First World War veteran and member of the Home Guard, saw this man on the doorstep in un- unfamiliar uniform, grabbed his uh, rifle and sort of promptly stuck it in this, <laughs> in this American <laughs> space, sort of questioning who he was and what he was doing there, which the American replied, geez, I thought we, <laughs> we came over on your side. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I do remember saying she also went for a dance with her sisters with Polish airmen as well and <laughs> had no, no way of communicating <laughs> with them at all. <laughs> Often to dance. One more thing, I remember she sort of talking about chewing gum coming over. That was something that the Americans brought over, and sort of being amazed at what a strange sort of conception this chewing gum was. Got any gum chum? That was that was the call. Was as the kids would surround the GIs shouting, "Got any gum chum?" <laughs> but it sounds as if your um, your old great granddad, uh, sorry, rather your granddad, won out over the charms of uh, of the Yanks. <laughs> so uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be here, I suppose. <laughs> uh, uh, well, exactly. <laughs> and the, you know that your strand of the family could have could have gone back to the United States or Poland or. Or, or anywhere for that matter. Great stuff, James. Thanks for that. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering a fascinating bunch of listeners' questions, which have been piling up, of course, on the Battleground 44 series. Welcome back. Well, we've got a very rich crop of questions ranging over a lot of the subjects that we've covered thus far in Battleground 44. Uh, I'm going to start off just by reading out something from Danny Peters, because uh, a friend of mine alerted me to this place not long ago. Um, Danny writes, uh, in response to the question from a listener regarding prisoners of war, there's an old POW camp, which is now a museum called Eden Camp near Moulton in Yorkshire. There is an enormous amount of information there, including letters and personal stories of prisoners who absolutely did not want to go back to Germany as their hometown was now under Soviet control. It's well worth a visit. Well, that's what I heard as well. Um, A friend of mine said it's absolutely fascinating. We do tend to get a bit fixated, don't we, Saul, on on the British and allied prisoner of war experience, you know, all the cold stories and all the rest of it. And not much attention has been paid to what happened to uh, German and Axis prisoners of war. So, yeah, it sounds like a good place to go. I am going to Yorkshire in the spring, so I'll definitely detour to have a look at Eden Camp. 
Yeah, and it's fascinating, isn't it, Patrick, to think that prisoners in, in the UK were loath to go back to Germany because, of course, East Germany had, had been taken over by the Soviets. I mean, completely understandably, uh, frankly. But yes, it is, a, it is a relatively unknown chapter of the war. I suppose if Germany was more interested in looking at its military history, particularly the Second World War, then there might have been more written about this. But of course, the stories we're interested in are what happened to our boys and the Americans, everyone else being held by the Germans. So, you know, that explains, I'm afraid, the dearth of literature on this. But it, but it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Okay, one hit from Andrew Lydon in Birmingham. Um, and he, he writes, by the Battle of Kursk in 1943, it seems to me that a lot of players in Europe knew that Germany was going to lose the war. The question was, who was going to win it, Stalin or the West? For example, de Gaulle was talking to his people about having to work with the Soviets. Now, Andrew goes on to say, by allowing an American to be supreme commander in the Normandy landings, Churchill surrendered the leading role in the new Western Europe to the Americans rather than seizing it for themselves. And he goes on to say, which of course is absolutely right, Churchill tells Brooke that he has to surrender the leadership of Overlord to the US in August 1943, but the US seems surprised that he gave in so easily. And uh, and so finally, in Eisenhower's published diary, he tells how the White House was still looking to accommodate Brooke in the leadership of Overlord as late as December 1943, presumably in, in case the British should belatedly try to open the subject, but Churchill never did. It's good you're trying to foster debate about 44, and in that spirit, I will definitely follow all your podcasts. But the point I think that uh, Andrew's making is that could Britain have done more about uh, stopping the Soviets getting as far as they did if, if they'd actually been leading Overlord? And I'm not really sure the two are connected, are they, Patrick? I mean, sooner or later, it came down to the, the simple argument, the simple arithmetic. Were the British and the Americans prepared to lose as many lives as was required to get to Berlin? And the answer, frankly, was no. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think a change at the top uh, of the overlord command structure would have actually made any difference in terms of the weight that Britain could bring to bear in how post-war Europe was ordered. I mean, that was going to be decided by by facts on the ground, wasn't it? And so, as you rightly say, our attitude towards casualties was much more cautious, much more humane, you might argue, uh, than the and the Soviets, so uh, you know, the things ended up the way they did, uh, just by the, the sheer you know dynamic of the war. And anyway, all this was sort of it was kind of decided at the various various conferences, uh, the Tehran conference, onwards, the Yalta conference. And so, I think you know, one change at the top is not going, was not going to have any significant effect on that. Here's one from you from uh, Tim Bendix, uh, and he asks, did Bomber Command have access to RAF fighter escorts, particularly during 1944 and 1945, Patrick? Uh, yeah, well, the whole, the whole thing changed because of, as always, you know, technology changes the whole thing. So the arrival of the Mustang fighter, long-range fighter, meant that the uh, Americans could resume operating in daylight and the fitting of drop tanks to RAF fighters greatly increased their range, which, which meant they did actually have much better protection in that latter period. In fact, the whole Bomber Command experience got a lot less harrowing from sort of mid-44 almost till the end of the war. If you just look at the casualties, they go down dramatically. That's a combination of the weakness of the Luftwaffe and you know the arrival of uh, long-range fighter escorts and sort of the continuous sort of improvement in tactics and uh, operational efficiency. 
There's a question here from Lee, who's uh, a Brit in Melbourne in Australia, and he wants to know what happened to all the military surplus following World War II. Well, I mean, all those surplus stores were set up, Patrick, so I'm guessing some of the kit was uh, went there, certainly as far as the clothes are concerned, but he, uh, I, he's really talking about everything. Disposal of scrapping of equipment, donations to friendly states, and sales of new and refurbished kits to states and collectors, but there doesn't appear to be a comprehensive or cohesive account about what happened to all of this. And he's also interested to know what happened to Axis kit. Uh, was this also scrapped, donated, sold? Did weapons amnesties occur in occupied countries? Was there a systematic approach to surplus? Um, any thoughts on this, Patrick? I mean, it, again, it's not, you know, it's another area that hasn't really been uh, that effectively covered because it's not that sexy, really. I mean, you know, you write a book about what happens to surplus kit and it's not going to be a bestseller, is it, Patrick? No, it might have a small niche audience. <laughs> but I mean, it, it is a fascinating area. Just It's the first time I've really thought about it, except actually having said that, I saw a movie the other day, which name now has gone out of my head, about returning US service, but a small group, four of them, they come back to their hometown. It's, it's their stories when they arrive back, how they, all the dramas and the troubles they face. But it opens with this incredible sequence of, arriving at a, a precisely one of the things you're talking about, Lee, um, which is a park for all this no longer needed B-17s, transports, all the rest of it, just acre after acre after acre of these now redundant aircraft, which is a scene later on in the film when the guy gets a job there in, in this uh, park where they're just you know dismantling these things and selling them off probably for scrap. But um, just another thought, when I was growing up in London, <laughs> The military surplus store, where they were not all over the place, but you know there was probably one in every suburb where you could get all this Second World War kit, you know, great coats, tropical gear, and uh, in the spirit of the time, this was a kind of sort of hippie era. Uh, that was one of, <laughs> one of the hippie looks was to go around in a sort of World War II great coat. I might even have had one myself. So they seem to have disappeared. So they clearly finally worked their way through all that World War II surplus gear. We've got one here from Marco Diaz in Colombia. He says, I'm a great fan of your show. I love your new series. That's very good to hear, Marco. Now, his question, and I think we're going to get a lot uh, off the back of Masters of the Air. In this case, uh, Marco's actually reading the book, uh, the original book by uh, Donald Miller, uh, rather than watching the series. But he says in the, from the book that um, he learned that there were early discussions about Bomber Command absorbing the 8th Air Force uh, to do only night bombing. This is what the RAF, of course, did. And there was a serious discussion, almost a decision at the summit in Casablanca, where Ira Ica, who was the um, the head of the uh, 8th Air Force, actually had to fight very hard to, uh, to stop Churchill from uh, advocating this. And his question, Marco's question is, how would the bombing war have turned out if they'd proceeded with that, i.e. if the 8th Air Force had been folded into Bomber Command. He asks, do you believe that Ica's most important argument, bombing around the clock, was a real advantage for the bombing war, or concentration would have been a better way to get better results? What do you think, Saul? Well, I'm not convinced at all that all-night bombing would have made that much difference, to be to be truthful, Patrick. I mean, we know that the casualties from doing both night bombing and day bombing were horrific. We also know that day bombing was probably marginally more effective. I mean, the Americans certainly claim that they were a bit more accurate. I mean, you've made the point many times, Patrick, that that, that argument is overdone, but it's it, it seems to be reasonably 
clear to me that you're more likely to be a bit more accurate if you're if you're bombing by day. So they would have lost out on some of the efficacy of the bombing. They'd have had more bombers to go at night. Um, but you know there are only so many. Uh, I suppose you could argue that you can put up at any one time in terms of logistics. So I'm not really buying the idea that it, it, it would have helped. I think uh, ultimately we now know, as we've discussed many times on this pod, that the destruction wrought by the bombers did have a real effect on the Germans. They forced them to divert resources from elsewhere. And actually, you probably needed to spread out that effort. So bombing by day and night, ultimately, I suspect, was the right decision. Yeah. On that question of accuracy, Saul, I was reminded of a, of a, a quote uh, that given by a senior US Air Force officer, uh, which he made at a post-war seminar on the bombing campaign. And he said, the RAF practiced precision attacks on area targets, while the US AAF carried out area attacks on precision targets. <laughs> and I think that's that very pretty good. much, that's a sort of rather cynical, but but not far from the truth, I think, assessment of the situation. Okay, nice anecdote here um, uh, relating to you, Patrick, from Alex Toft. Uh, and he writes, around the time Patrick's book, Bomber Boys, was published, I was contributing to an annual World War II RAF veterans event called Project Propeller, which involved current pilots flying vets to a summer reunion at various World War II-focused airfields. They may have been a little creaky to get into a light aircraft, but once gear up in crews and given the you have control instruction, they certainly hadn't forgotten their solid stick and rudder work. The conversations were sometimes astonishing. The vets I flew were some of the finest people I've ever met, and it saddens me that there are no longer enough of them still with us for the event to continue as a going concern. I got quite used to hearing the Vera Lynn tribute band every year, and even with slots allocated, the aircraft arrival rate at each event easily exceeded that of London Heathrow for several hours. We always managed to make time for a cheeky pint once back on the ground in Yorkshire at the end of the day. A large 617, that's 617 squadron poster gifted to me by one of the chap's family and signed by all the vets is now in pride of place on my wall. Were you aware of that uh, project, Patrick? I wasn't, no. Well, well done you, Alex. Um, and it must be nice to have that 617 poster on the wall. I got one myself actually signed by, uh, like you, by some, some of the vets. And one of the one of the uh, 617, in fact, two of them became very good friends of mine, Tony Iverson and Benny Goodman, both sadly gone to the great uh, uh, officer's mess in the sky. Um, but yeah, I mean, terrific. Uh, it sounds like a terrific event. I wish I'd been there. Okay, David Dickinson uh, writes, I'm enjoying your podcast, particularly your recent return to 1944. On your last podcast, you mentioned leadership and the problems faced by the bombers over Berlin and Germany. I am a former army officer and part of our leadership training at Sandhurst was a series of films that were shown to us. Rather than watch the films, most of us used the time to get some well-deserved sleep. And I've actually heard that anecdote in relation to any military history they were taught to, uh, Patrick. <laughs> anyway, David goes on to say, however, one of the films caught our attention, 12 O'Clock High, made in 1949, so just four years after the war and starring Gregory Peck. Against the backdrop of the raids that you described in the podcast, it explores the different types of leadership crucially how it affects the men and the unit's operational effectiveness. If you haven't seen the film, I can really recommend it, not just as an exercise in leadership, but for what the bomber crews went through on their raids over Germany, also what happened before and after their missions. And David goes on to say he wants to thank us for the Falklands podcast. He was he completed a tour just after the war and, uh, and the podcast brought back many memories, both good and bad. But going back to the film 12 o'clock, hi, Patrick, I, I take it you've seen it. 
I've seen it a couple of times. Yeah, it was uh, came out in 1949, and it stars Gregory Peck as uh, General Frank Savage, who is brought in to kind of basically stiffen the morale uh, of a of a unit that's um, that's taken very very heavy losses. It's it's a very very good film, and it did, I've, I've made this point before, but you know that there haven't been any British films. About the reality of uh, bomber command experience, you know all the trauma, um, you know the dreadful psychological strains. There have been films that that deal with the subject, but not, uh, but sort of peripherally, if you like. Um, there's one called Appointment in London. The Dam Busters, which everyone remembers, is not about uh, the nightly grind of going off to hit a German city with all the attendant dangers and wear and tear on on nerves, etc. Um, it's about a, a particular raid, which hasn't got any moral kind of question marks over it as the area bombing campaign had. Um, so, yeah, it hasn't really been dealt with by, by British cinema. But the Americans were onto it very quickly. Um, there was an, another film in 1990 called Memphis Bell, which was pretty realistic. But 12 O'Clock High, for me, one of the it's got one of the great opening sequences. I keep going on about American movies I've seen in this episode. But this has got a fantastic opening se- sequence when Gregory Peck, returns to the old base and this is of course you know just a few years after the war and this is one of these you know prefabricated bomber bases thrown up in the flatlands of east england and it's already reverting uh, to farmland so there's this sort of rather wonderful ghostly sequence when he goes through the old buildings with a sort of faint echo of what it was like only a few years before but now it's all derelict the wind is blowing and the doors are flapping the windows are broken and it's a sort of rather wonderful sort of melancholy uh, evocation of the sort of transience of all experience. But yeah, great movie um, and de- definitely you know, shows, again, uh, the, the different way that the, the bombing campaign was treated by American mass media and by us. We seem to have felt rather kind of ashamed of what we did or rather doubtful about what we did. But the Americans celebrated it. They didn't have any problem at all with that, with their bombing campaign. Agnieszka in Warsaw is asking about the possibility of a catastrophe on D-Day and what provisions Eisenhower had made if that had happened uh, in the case of a collapse of morale or a military disaster. And she goes on to say success in Normandy wasn't wasn't inevitable. What if the fleet was just had been destroyed by, let's say, a storm during the crossing or landing armies had been pushed back to the sea? Eisenhower says Agnieszka must have made decisions to save what was left of the morale and retain for the other generals, not for himself, a moral right to lead men. Could you please elaborate on that? Well, it's a brilliant question, actually, Patrick. And I'm not sure I have the full answer, but from what I'm aware, and certainly, you know, I'm working, I'm writing a lot about Eisenhower at the moment, as I think the listeners will know from our earlier episodes. And what Eisenhower says just before D-Day is we're going all in. We're not even talking about failure. I think it was a kind of, you know, let's get the let's get the sense that failure isn't an option. Let's not even talk about what might happen if we don't succeed, uh, because we need everyone to absolutely believe that this uh, project is going to be successful. Now, you may say that's a bit naive, and that uh, and Agnieszka's absolutely right to say it was a close run thing. It was indeed, you know, if the if the Panzers had been able to. Uh, counterattack effectively in the way that von Luck, one of the panzer commanders, says they had the opportunity to do and didn't on the first day, or indeed the morning of D-Day, uh, would it have made a big difference? There were lots of things that could have gone wrong, as can go wrong with all military operations, particularly amphibious. So it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. But as far as I'm aware, 
the idea was to give everyone a sense, we're going there, we're staying there, and therefore there will be no planning and there will be no option, frankly, for success. And and in many ways, Patrick, it, it seems a bit weird, but actually that sort of psychology, I suspect, is tremendously important when you have a high-risk venture like that. Absolutely. Um, we've got one here from Rob Penner in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. He says, Patrick and Saul, I'm a long-time listener and enjoyed your 1944 segments. He says, you both referred to Dieppe in the Eisenhower episode. That was um, an early one, the first one, wasn't it? And he says, it's a subject close to my heart as a Canadian, because, of course, it was the Canadian division who provided the bulk of the forces. He said, I was not surprised to hear your description of the operation, which for years has always seemed incomprehensible in its shambolic planning. Now, uh, he goes on, I wonder, however, if you're familiar with One Day in August by David O'Keefe, the book details new evidence demonstrating that Dieppe was conceived not as a preliminary invasion, but as a, quote, pinch operation designed to capture newer generation Enigma machines. Too small an operation would have made its goals obvious, and so it was scaled up to obscure its true objective. But of course, this resulted in the disastrous raid on a divisional scale that cost so many Canadian lives. He says, the book's achieved a popular following in Canada, but I wonder if its message is not widely known or accepted. Well, Rob, I I don't know whether you know, I've written a book called um, Operation Jubilee, which uh, came out two years ago now, three years ago. And that, um, you know, it goes, it's all about Dieppe. You know, it's absolutely all about Dieppe. And of course, I do deal with the um, David O'Keefe's thesis in it. Now, I've got a lot of admiration for David O'Keefe. He's he's a terrific uh, delver into the archives he's dug up some interesting new stuff but i'm afraid i found that the whole argument pretty unconvincing for a number of reasons if you just look at the way that the thing was conceived uh, there were lots of reasons none of them very coherent it must be said for the raid on dieppe it was part of a kind of ongoing process of raids that were getting bigger and bigger uh, a lot of it had to do with the ambitions of uh, mount batten who was uh, combined operations chief uh, and various other players, including the, the uh, Canadian commanders themselves, who wanted to show that they were actually their troops were up and ready for action. So yes, there was a, an element of seizing an Enigma machine in the operation, but it was a very small part of it. And there have been several attempts before, or indeed successful attempts, to grab uh, Enigma machines and code books and all the rest of it in previous raids in on in Norway in particular. So I think what has happened is that this one element of it has been magnified way out of proportion in order to give some explanation for what, in many ways, was an inexplicable operation of war. It, it didn't really make much sense whichever way you looked at it. But I fear that um, David O'Keefe, much as I admire him, has got this essentially wrong. And I, I think I can understand why Canadians who are, who are trying to find an answer to why so many Canadian lives were sacrificed in such a bizarre operation would grasp at this explanation to give some meaning to the losses of those lives. Okay, I'm going to finish with one with Martin from France. Martin and I have had a bit of a standoff over the Houthis in in, uh, the Friday episode. So I'm very, very uh, flattered to hear Martin saying, referring to the Siege of Leningrad episode last week with Anna Reid, he said, Hi, Patrick. Superb episode with a great guest. Well, thanks very much for that, Martin. It's very gracious of you. Thank you very much indeed. Anna Ree was indeed a superb guest. It's well worth a listen. If you haven't heard that one, go back and have a listen.
Okay, that's all we have time for. Uh, do join us on Friday for the latest news from Ukraine, Gaza, and we'll be answering listeners' questions. And also, of course, back next week for another episode of Battleground 44. Goodbye. Goodbye.